Hello, and welcome to the Emotional Expedition Podcast. I'm Meg Thomas, and if you want to live a more open-hearted, magical life, it all starts with your emotions. This podcast will take you on a journey, helping you to better understand, express, release, and heal your emotions. Let's get exploring. Welcome to another episode of the Emotional Expedition Podcast, where we delve into the emotional and inspiring stories of those who faced life's toughest challenges. And today, we're honored to have Annabelle Chown with us. Annabelle's not only a successful architect and a yoga teacher, but also a breast cancer survivor, an author, and a beacon of light, a beacon of hope. In this episode, Annabelle opens up and shares her journey from the shock of a cancer diagnosis at the age of 31 to the emotional and physical battles that followed. She shares how she navigated the complexities of treatment, the fear, the uncertainty, and the profound changes that came with it. Annabelle also talks about how she found solace and strength in yoga and how it became a spiritual experience for her and eventually led her to become a yoga teacher herself. We'll delve into her experiences with fertility, her decision to get tested for the BRCA gene, and her journey to motherhood. This is a story of transformation. It's a story of finding beauty in the midst of struggle, and of using adversity as a catalyst for change. So sit back, and prepare to be inspired by Annabelle's incredible journey. Welcome, Annabelle. How are you doing today? I am pretty good sitting here in London. That's almost spring-like, which is exciting. It's such a hopeful time of year, isn't it? It's my absolute favorite time of year because you just feel like there's this fullness to everything and also the anticipation of summer lying ahead. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's my mm. favorite. <laughs> yes. We like to start at this podcast at the beginning. So we like to start back in our childhoods. What was young Annabelle like? I think she was quite shy. She was quite creative like back then I always loved drawing and arts and stuff like that so it's definitely kind of more the introverted creative type than the out there social I mean I always had a lot of friends or quite a lot of friends but I wasn't like wildly kind of out there and extroverted Mm, yes and because I know you ended up in a career as an architect did that start at a young age or did writing? I think that is a creative process as well. Did either of those things start to show up in childhood for you? Funnily, in childhood, the arts was much more prevalent for me than the writing. I was like really into art at school. And I think that's how I ended up becoming an architect because of that love of art. So that love of art was, I think, what propelled me to becoming an architect. And I also did enjoy writing. And I remember my mum saying to me once when I went to like a school assessment, one of those little exams you had to do, she was like, oh, do one of your really amazing endings on your story when you have to write the story, like you're really good at those. So that kind of stuck with me. But 
Yeah, I think it was much more the visual arts that were my first big love. Mm, yes. I love that you share that because when I look back on my story as well, it was art. It was photography. Mm. It was drawing. It was painting. I went, I ended up going to college for a Bachelor of Fine Arts and my focus was photography and printmaking. And so here I am now stepping more into becoming a writer. And I never looked at it that way of, I wonder how these creative pieces just continued to add to that mm, that alchemy of who you are today. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I think, you know, if you're creative, you're probably always going to be creative, but the medium in which you express yourself might change, you know, because I also, as, as you know, teach yoga and I see that as a creative expression too, like the creativity and coming up with inspiring sequences and all of that. So that's, now another manifestation of it. But when I was a child, I wasn't very physical at all. Mm -hmm. Would you consider yourself an emotional or sensitive child? How were your emotions when you were young? Oh, definitely. I was definitely the you know creative, emotional child who probably was very sensitive and felt things quite acutely. And I think, you know, as children, especially back then, this was in the 70s and 80s, you weren't so encouraged to express emotions as we are and indeed children are today. So even though, you know, my parents are not particularly repressive types, there wasn't that permissiveness towards being a more emotional person back then, I felt. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very much a cultural thing and a generational thing. And and now we find ourselves stepping more into these places of normalizing, talking about our emotions. Mm. Yeah. So walk us through your childhood and how you end up where you do in going to school to become an architect. How do you get to there? So, yeah, I grew up in a fairly kind of academic family and that both my parents went to university, which, you know, wasn't always, isn't always the case, of course. And you know, there was the kind of, I went to you know, good school in London and there was the expectation that I would go to some sort of further education. And I was toying with the idea of art school like you did, more fine art. I was toying with the idea of doing like a history degree because I loved, I actually did really like writing essays at school. Now I remember mm. it wasn't creative writing, but it was, you know, I like that process of writing and also thinking, well, maybe I'll do something like architecture because, you know, it's more of an academic subject, but it encapsulates that love of art and creativity and design. And I remember I had a teacher at school. She was, I didn't realize it at the time, she was very pro women doing architecture because at the time, not that many women studied architecture and indeed still probably not so many now. And I remember going to talk to her and she was like, you need to do architecture. And I just kind of took that on rightly or wrongly and was like, okay, I'm going to study architecture. So I applied to architecture school and off I went. Mm. And what did it look like when you finally arrived at the place of becoming an architect? What was that energy like? It was an interesting job. It was a very hard job in that the hours were very long, the responsibility was high, the pay was not so high considering the kind of level of, you know, responsibility and training you needed. 
you know, I got into some quite good practices in London. I had quite a reasonable amount of responsibility for someone of my age. I quite enjoyed it, but I also found the way in which you're supposed to be kind of wedded to the office and put the office above and beyond anything else quite Mm -hmm. challenging because it didn't leave that much space for other things. And I was also young. I was like in my, you know, still in my 20s, kind of 30. And at that stage in your life, you know, you do tend to put yourself all out for your career. But I still think I found that a little bit challenging, just that dedication that was expected. Did you ever hit a stage of burnout? from just working at that level of intensity? No, I don't think I ever got to that burnout that you read about people Mm -hmm. talking a lot about now where you just are like, I cannot function anymore. I cannot get out of bed this morning. I am done. I definitely worked really hard. But if I'm honest, I don't think it ever got to quite that place. Yeah. How does yoga come into the picture? How did that come into your story? So I had tried yoga over the years occasionally. I'd done the odd class at university. You know, every now and again, I dipped into it. And it was one of those things that I felt like I should like yoga because yoga is supposed to be really good for you. (laughs) (laughs) If I'm honest, to begin with, I never really loved it or fully got it. And then I found an amazing teacher at a quite local studio to me in London and something shifted. And suddenly it was this like incredibly beautiful, magical thing. And I should also mention that this was at a time when I was working really hard in the office. Mm -hmm. And I started going to this class on a Monday evening. It was like at eight o'clock, which is quite late, but that was really the earliest time I could get there after the office. And this hour and a half of yoga was like this, you know, absolute moment Mm. of bliss on this very busy work orientated week. So it became my kind of sanctuary, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Yoga also came to me later in life and at a time where I was busier than I'd ever been. And my wedding photography business was busier than I'd ever experienced. I'd made more money than I'd ever experienced. And there was something missing for me. I was disconnected from my body and my mind. And I think that's really the reason why I fell so deeply in love with yoga was the physical was kind of secondary to it. What it was helping me do with my mind (laughs) was the best part was the reason why I kept going. It just was turning the noise down, just turning it down. So I could, I could still keep functioning at that level. And then of course, it kind of drew me in different directions once I really got into it as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Will you share with us what happened next? So yeah, I was, as I said, at that stage where I was working really hard. I was going to my yoga class every Monday night and falling in love with yoga. And I was a single girl in London who, you know, really wanted to find a boyfriend. So typically on the weekend, I was 
going out to parties with my friends. And one Saturday night, a few of my friends and I went to a party. And I remember like being in this basement in the center of London, dancing and checking out the guys and didn't meet anyone and got home alone and got undressed and took my top off. And suddenly my hand like felt this lump on my skin on my left breast and I was completely freaked out because I'd never had anything like that I'd never really had any health issues and my instinct was oh my god something is really really wrong here and in the coming like days and weeks pretty much everyone around me reassured me even my mum who can be quite anxious around illness like, I'm sure it's nothing. I'm sure it's just a benign lump. I mean, nine out of 10 breast lumps are benign, you know, that old spiel and, you know, you're young. And at that time, we believed we didn't have any history of breast cancer in our family. So we don't have any history, you'll be fine. So I still got it checked out. And the first doctor I saw said, it feels like nothing, but I'm going to send you for a scan just to be sure. The second doctor I saw said, it's nothing, but the they did a needle biopsy. They stuck a needle into it. The cells look slightly unusual, but we really, really, really don't think it's cancer or even pre-cancer. Don't worry about it, but we're just going to take it out of the precaution. So I was like completely relaxed. I even went to New York for the weekend to see my friend as I'd planned to do and like have this fantastic new weekend in New York. And then I got back and the morning after I went to hospital, still really chilled. And the last thing the doctor said to me before he took me into the operating theatre was, don't worry, this definitely isn't cancer. Mm. And then I woke up a few hours later and he marched in to see me and he went, I'm really sorry, but I have to tell you that we've definitely found pre-cancer and we've quite possibly found cancer too. You'll have to wait a few days to get the results. Mm. So I was just thrown, you know, instantly there into this like other space of like, oh my goodness, like, you know, the ground had just fallen away from my feet because, you know, even pre-cancer was kind of freaky. But of course I was thinking, please, 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 can it only be pre-cancer? Which, you know, a week earlier would have been like such a weird thing to be thinking. Mm -hmm. So I went off, I waited and I came back and he just said to me, look, I'm really sorry, we have found cancer. And, you know, in those moments, in that moment, you know, your whole world just changes. Mm. Do you remember what that moment felt like for you? I think it felt like a combination of, on the one hand, the ground had literally just fallen away because everything I thought I knew about myself and my life no longer applied. Because when you hear the word cancer, you just think, I'm going to die. I mean, even though that's not necessarily the case and often not the case and I'm here 20 years on you just think I'm gonna die and at the same time there was this shock this disbelief this this isn't really happening to me because it can't be yeah in those first few weeks was there a lot of denial how did that process show up for you initially I mean, there was in a way, but on the other hand, there couldn't be because it wasn't like something you could just tuck away and pretend wasn't happening mm-hmm. because I had to go back into hospital to have a second surgery to check all the lymph nodes to have lymph nodes removed, which they hadn't done in the first surgery because they didn't believe they were dealing with cancer. And I had to go and see an oncologist to discuss chemotherapy. 
And, you know, I told, obviously I had to tell people like my boss, I told a handful of my really good friends. So in a way you'd like to be in denial, but the life is kind of, you know, churning around you, reminding you that actually this is your new reality. Mm. Was it unfolding pretty quickly where they, did it feel like almost like an aggressive way of treating that everything was just happening really quickly? And at this time you're 31 years old, right? Yeah, I'm 31. Yeah. Yes, in a way. I think initially it did because it was like, okay, let's do the second surgery. Okay, these are the results from the second surgery. Okay, we've booked you to see the oncologist. And then I went to see this first oncologist and I really didn't like him. I think he was a guy. I mean, I'm sure some male doctors are amazing. (laughs) In fact, I've met some amazing ones in my time, but he was very like a non-sympathica. He was like, well, you know, you'll probably lose your hair and you'll probably lose your fertility, kind of like it was no big deal. Mm. And he's talking to a 31-year-old woman. And then he said, right, I want you to come in and have your first session of chemotherapy like next week. And I just thought, hang on, I'm not going to do it with this guy. It just doesn't feel right. So I found myself a second doctor, a woman who was amazing. And she also said to me, look, you know, as long as you have your first session of chemo within, I can't remember whether it was three or four weeks from now, the prognosis makes no difference whatsoever. Like you don't need to rush into this. I think you need to do it, but you don't need to like race into it next week. So she just really kind of helped me emotionally. And I remember her saying to me, I have every faith you're going to come back to me in a few years and have a photo to put in my baby book. She had a book of all the babies that were born to her clients post-cancer, her patients post-cancer. And she just had this like belief that I was going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Whereas the other guy was just citing statistics at me and going, well, if you don't have chemo, you have this chance of dying. If you do have chemo, you have this chance of dying. And mm. it was just a very different approach, yes. let's say. Yes. Mm. Did you know at this time you wanted to have children? In a very vague way. Like I was single. I always thought and hoped that I would have children, but it wasn't something I was like feeling you know, I had to get on with immediately. And my mom had kids later, she was in her late 30s, even early 40s when she had children. So I think I grew up with the belief that you didn't have to have a child at 30 or even 35 to, you know, for it to happen. Yeah, yeah. And I think I was 34 when I decided, oh, I think I do want to have children. Up until then, I was like, nope, not for me, not this isn't what, what I want. And so yeah, I also at 31, it was absolutely not on my radar yet. I understand that. And my experience through going through some massive medical trauma and health issues and illness, I don't believe that I processed a lot of the emotion and the trauma that I experienced and the stress that I experienced until years and years later. While I was moving through it, it was almost a sense of survival. Okay, do this. This is the next thing you have to do. This is the next thing. Was that your experience as well? Definitely to a certain extent. 
I started having therapy quite early on after I was diagnosed. I hadn't even thought about it, but then somebody said to me, I think it's really important to do this because, you know, your friends and family are there for you, but you kind of need a safe space away from them and all their worries and their kind of love for you where you can just say anything. So I found a therapist and he was amazing. But I think even so, even having the weekly ritual of therapy, I um, was so having to, like you said, almost like be in survival mode and get through the chemo, get through the radio, get through the kind of whole thing, and probably to a certain extent still in shock as well. Mm. So it was really, I feel like I started to digest it more fully when the treatment itself was over and all that kind of structure of treatment, which is almost like a kind of clock ticking that keeps you going and moving. And then it was almost like the time I really kind of felt the grief of it, the loss of it. So I think, and I was still having therapy then. So I think I did process quite a lot of it relatively early, but it was after the actual treatment had finished. How did yoga play a role during this time? Oh my God, it was literally life-saving. So I think it played a role in a couple of different ways. So one way was that this amazing teacher I'd found, he was teaching a lot of what's called, which you probably know, yin yoga, Mm. where you hold like passive stretches, like the pigeon pose for, you know, maybe five minutes, which is a really long time. And during that time, a lot of sensation, not pain, but discomfort or intensity, whatever word you want to use comes up. And his teaching was always to just really like almost marinate yourself in the intensity and be with it and sit with it rather than try and push it away. And that by doing so, somehow you are better able to absorb it or be with it rather than if you're kind of in a narrative going, no, 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 just get me out of here. And I found that so powerful when I just applied it to the whole experience that I was going through. It was kind of like, okay, well, can I just do my best, which obviously isn't always easy at all or possible to like be with this experience, to be with the discomfort that comes up from it. So that was incredibly helpful. But also it was really helpful to just go to the yoga studio where I hadn't told anyone what I was going through. They didn't know. I didn't know my teachers really intimately. It's quite a big studio and just show up and like be a normal person, Mm. not a cancer patient. And, you know, because I don't know, because I was kind of young, I guess I was still able to do regular classes, not straight after I'd had a chemo session, but like chemo was on a three week cycle. So in the good bits of the cycle, I was able to show up and I was able to be in my warrior two and my downward dog. And there was something incredibly empowering about taking these poses and reminding myself that Yes, on the one hand, I was a hairless cancer patient, but on the other hand, I wasn't just that. I was like more than that. Mm. Oh, I love that. I I wish I had yoga during that time in my life. Yoga came into my life much later. Oh, I just imagine that would have really helped with coming back to the present moment and Were you experiencing a lot of worry and anxiety about, is this going to work? Am I going to live? Were thoughts like that going through your mind? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think that almost how can they not be? I think there are people who 
maybe only allow themselves to put focus on the positives, like I'm going to be fine, I'm going to be fine. And maybe there are some people who can genuinely do that. But I also think there can be a danger of almost sugarcoating the whole thing and kind of being good vibes only about it. And I'm not going to let myself feel difficult emotions and mm. worry. But I think it's just very human to you because you've been faced, especially at such a young age when no one else around you, thank goodness, is going through anything like this with this like huge shock and, you know, life-changing events. Mm. Oh, so, so beautiful. And we see this everywhere, this good vibes only, this think positive, be positive, don't worry, be happy, all of these different mantras and affirmations that we are plastering on t-shirts and everywhere. And you're right, it's, it's a form of actually bypassing what it is we're feeling and allowing ourselves yeah. that space to feel as things continue to come up. And some of that is the anxiety, the worry, the dread, those fears. How was your relationship with your body at this point? Because for me, I was 22 years old when I was starting to have these major surgeries where my stomach was cut open and I have this massive scar across my stomach. And so this was a time for me where I very much cared about my appearance and my body and how it looked. And so there was just, it was almost overnight, I had to let go of some of that in relation, let go of what I thought was important in my body and move to a different relationship with my body. Did any of that happen to you as well? Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about what I went through was that on the outside, I didn't, I mean, probably the same for you too, but I didn't look that change. So, you know, I had a scar, but it was hidden. You weren't, wouldn't walk around with your boobs out. Mm -hmm. I had a wig because I didn't wear a turban. I, my hair all fell out, but I had a wig. And Ironically, during chemo, I lost a lot of weight because I was very sick from the drugs. Each time I had it, I was violently ill. So people would come up to me and go, wow, you look amazing. They didn't know, like, you know, yeah. acquaintances I'd run into. And I was probably at my thinnest because yes. of this weight loss yes. growing up. And I had this wig and people would say, I was surprised they didn't clock it, but they would go, oh, great new haircut. And it was genuine. It wasn't like they were just saying something. They had no idea. So on the one hand, I felt quite good in my body. And on the other hand, of course, behind the wig, behind the clothes was a big scar with no hair. Mm -hmm. So on the other hand, like I felt quite trashed. I mean, you know, you've had your hair taken away. You've got a scar mm. on one of the parts of your body that's supposed to be kind of sexually attractive. So I think there was a lot of fear around like, what if I meet a boyfriend and he sees all this? Yeah. And as it happens, I didn't meet anyone during that period, which was probably in a way a blessing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then afterwards, I remember I had radiotherapy and it made me very, very, very tired. And I put on weight, not a huge amount of weight, but you know, maybe went up a dress size or two. Mm -hmm. And I remember coming out of it all thinking, oh my God, I'm fat and like all this crazy stuff. And you're thinking on the one hand, like, this is mad. You've just survived cancer. You've been through cancer treatment and you are worrying that you are now like a size, a UK size 12, so like an eight, an American eight instead of an American four. I mean, how crazy is that? Mm -hmm. 
So definitely went through some stuff with it. Although I think also in the longer run, I felt like, well, you know, you got away quite lightly. Like, yeah, you have a scar. So I was thinking on the one hand, you may get away with this quite lightly. Like you do have this scar across your left breast, but it's healed. It's faded in time. And also I heard about a lot of possible long-term problems that chemotherapy could give you like not being able to lift your arm properly from the lymph nodes getting swollen I think it's something called lymphedema and generally feeling a bit rubbish and I actually think I physically recovered quite fast maybe because I was so young I don't know so in the long run I didn't have too many issues with it. So how long was your journey from start to finish being in that process? I mean, the actual treatment part was, you know, from when they found the lump and I was diagnosed with cancer, rather from when they found that the lump was cancerous until I completed all my treatment was about eight months. But obviously the emotional healing is is longer Mm -hmm. and the probably to a certain extent it's infinite. But yeah, the intense part of the emotional healing was, I'd say, Probably another six months on top of that, in addition to that, where, you know, I just took time to come back to so-called real life and know how to re-engage with it because everything's been so shaken up and, you know, your parameters change so much and you feel so out of sync with everyone else in your world who've all spent the last year, like, getting married and having babies and getting promotions at work. So, I think that was, you know, that was Mm. tough. Mm. For me, it was just this complete before and after. And I had just graduated college and people were drinking and having just these wonderful times. And overnight, I was, you know, never drank again from that point on because of how my body processes certain foods and I had to change my diet completely. And so, yeah, it was, I could never go back to who I was before. It was just this really defining moment of before and after, and I was no longer that same person. And at the same time, I also had this really powerful like zest for life once i was felt healthy enough i start that's when i started my wedding photography business and i was just all in there was nothing stopping me cuz it felt like i had a second chance at life what did it look like after for you what did that journey what what was that like i mean like you There was definitely, I felt, a sense of grief and mourning for you will never go back to being that person you were before, which in some ways was very liberating, which I'll speak about in a moment, but in other ways was really sad because, you know, I will never have that innocence about my body again. I will never assume, which is a good thing as well, that I will live a long life. Like I can never assume any of these things again. And that has its upside as well, because equally, you know, similar to you speaking about your zest for life, it makes you kind of seize the moment and realize that 
that cliche saying life is not a dress rehearsal like Mm -hmm. life is to be lived in the here and now so I never went back to the office my boss was really nice and he offered me my job back my 60 hour a week job back (laughs) and I just thought no like thank you thank you for being so nice and he's an amazing architect still is now but no this just doesn't feel right so I started working for myself from home as a freelance architect I was you know going to a lot of yoga classes still I started writing that's when I started to write I was very lucky I was invited into an amazing writers group and I just made my priorities very different like and I felt like justified in doing so in a way that I think if none of this had happened I probably wouldn't have given myself permission to Mm. yes yeah that makes so much sense those are the good parts that came out of my journey as well is it it brought me on a completely different course where I was forced (laughs) I was forced to take care of my body. And I was forced to learn how to feed my body in a way that was not happening in those early 20s. And then eventually finding yoga and being able to connect more spiritually as well. Yeah. Was yoga a spiritual experience for you too? Yeah, definitely. I think it just, made me feel like I was connected to a different part of me like this part that kind of felt much more spacious and peaceful and this was something I discovered pre-cancer was when I was working so hard like that's why I fell in love so much with those classes because it was how they made you feel it's like you know that famous Maya Angelou quote people don't remember what you said but they remember how you made them feel and it was the feeling that I was left with after these classes this kind of blissed out spacious peaceful feeling which just wasn't a very familiar one in my day-to-day life because it was kind of stressy and busy. Hmm. Did you go on to become a yoga teacher? Did you go through a teacher training yeah. as well? That's what yeah, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. And I now. So I guess about th- three or four years after I finished all the treatment, I signed up for the teacher training and it just felt like a very natural progression. I mean, I was an architect still and I did it alongside my freelance architecture career which you know I kept up for you know quite many years even after I completed my teacher training but it just felt like a a natural progression and I think I felt I've got so much from this practice that I love so much and that kind of feeling of you know I want to share it with others. When did you finally get tested for the BRCA gene? So I finally actually got tested gosh about 12 years after my diagnosis but it took me a long time to get tested because I found out about eight years after my diagnosis that one of my cousins had got breast cancer and then actually sadly quite soon after another cousin got it so this was when we realized there was a very 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 high possibility that I had the BRCA gene because they, I think one of them got tested, one of them refused to get tested, but the other got tested and she had it. So it was kind of like, you almost certainly have the BRCA gene. But I spoke to this amazing geneticist at the hospital here in London and she said, look, I don't think you're emotionally ready to get tested because there's a huge difference between 
thinking you have the gene and knowing you have the gene. Mm. So which seems so strange now, but I just, I don't know. I think I felt like, God, I thought I was done with this breast cancer thing. Like I really don't feel like being tested for this gene. So I held off for a few years. And then I guess at some stage, I just felt ready to do it, felt ready to have the surgery, assuming it was positive, which it was positive. Yeah. I think it's, it's funny because again, like people pressurize you, people were like, you know, you should have the test on, you should do this, you should do that. But you kind of have to feel ready for things as well emotionally. And, you know, obviously I'm saying this with the the luck of having waited and still been fine. You know, I'm still here. I've had all the surgery, all is well. So it's kind of easy for me to say that. But I do feel like, yeah, you have to be emotionally ready for things as well as physically yeah. ready. Were you tested before or after having your son? I was tested before having him. And at that stage, my husband and I were trying to have a baby. I think we just started. I can't even remember. And I knew that if I was tested and then subsequently went on to have a mastectomy, I wouldn't be able to breastfeed, which thinking back now, it so was not a big deal. But at the time I thought, oh my God, should I even have a baby? I can't breastfeed him because we're again, fed that myth or that narrative of like, you know, you need to breastfeed your baby to give it a good start in life. And like with hindsight, that really annoys me that that kind of story is so out there because Mm -hmm. like, you know, lots of people can't for whatever reason. So yeah, I had the surgery and then I had my son two years later, actually. Yeah. And then I had my ovaries removed six months after he was born because BRCA1 also puts you at very high risk of ovarian cancer. Mm. Wow, yeah. Will you share a little bit about what that journey of having him looked like? Because I myself am going through the IVF process. And how did that unfold for you? Well, like everyone, we decided to start trying and tried naturally and then tried IVF. And it was like, you know, we succeeded on a final, what we said would be a final round of IVF. And yeah, so it was, you know, it was quite a long journey. And I, I feel incredibly lucky because, you know, I realized that not everyone ends up with a baby who wants a baby or who has IVF. And that, you know, we got, God willing, a, a healthy child. So I think I just, I just feel incredibly grateful for that. Yeah. Mm, yeah. The numbers were just released, I think, in the last month of it's no longer one in eight women struggling. It's one in six women struggling with infertility. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, obviously the reasons are many, like, but I do think that modern lifestyle isn't necessarily conducive to getting pregnant with all, I'm not saying, you know, infertility is always caused by stress, not at all, but so many of us are living in stressed out systems. I don't think it is helping. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah, very much. I coach women going through fertility treatments and 
if it was just as simple as, you know, eat figs, which you hear a lot about in the fertility community as figs, if it was just that simple, we would have all figured it out. But it's physical, it's emotional, it's mental, it's spiritual, it's all of those things combined. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, you never know quite what it is. It's a bit like when you get cancer, you never know quite what the thing that will help you get better from it. Obviously, there's chemo and all the conventional treatments, which I believe in. But I think also beyond that, the kind of Mm -hmm. physical healing through nutrition, the spiritual healing, like all of that can help you too. But you never quite know what it is that's going to be your like, magic bullet, the particular set of things that will help you that may not help your best friend or, yeah. you know. Yeah. What does your life look like now? How, what is this? I think we, we strive to have these moments of balance and oh, your Instagram is so beautiful. You had just shared recently a post about your yoga practice and how that changes over time and and almost I felt reading it permission for it to change. When I first started yoga, it was I was involved in these do a practice, you know, for 90 days, 31 minute a day meditations and this level of intensity. And as I've now been in the practice for a long longer time, my relationship has changed with it. But you have to allow yourself that space to make it, to give yourself permission to have a different relationship to it. So what does a day look like for you now? How do we take care of ourselves? There are two very different days for me. A day when I'm, you know, my, my son is four, so he's at nursery in term time, but in the holidays, he's on the holidays. So let's not talk about the holidays because the holidays, (laughs) I'm just mother <laughs> for all the glory and challenge of that and say in the holidays so in the rather in the term time like my husband and I have both got into this habit of getting up really early which I think we've always both been quite early risers but our son when he was very little used to wake up every day at 5 a.m every day so we kind of got into the habit of also waking up then more because we had to. <laughs> and even though now he sleeps, sleeps in until maybe six, six thirty, occasionally seven, we've still got that habit, which is actually really good. So I will get up and I will use that time between say about five, five thirty and when he wakes up to do a combination of, you know, meditation and or movement. So that's when I will typically do my weights, do my yoga practice, do my core, do my meditation. So that's almost like a really sacred kind of hour or so in the day for me. And I find that if I've done that, it sets me up just really well for the day. I feel like I've done that piece. It helps me feel good in myself, in my body, in my mind. I've had that little something for myself. Yeah. And then it's kind of the rush to, you know, get him ready for nursery, have breakfast. And then he goes to nursery at like nine and I come home and I have, you know, between nine and two or nine and three. So typically I will just try and use that time. Sometimes I'm teaching, but to do some writing to, yeah, kind of quite often if I'm not teaching to kind of build up that side of myself, because that's my thing I'm trying to focus on a bit more now, but you know, it takes time and it takes commitment. So yeah, 
And then, you know, after that, I will go and pick him up and go to the playground or go to the local square with him and hang out. And then we come home, we cook dinner, we eat dinner really early. So in a way, it's like kind of a really quiet life, but I, I quite like it. Mm. And then try and go to bed early. It's mm-hmm. very exciting, right? <laughs> mm. Sounds beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a very nourishing day. And in those ways of helping take care of yourself. And I know writing became a big part of your journey. Will you share how how you came to write a book? <laughs> how did that come? Yeah, I had always liked writing. Like at university, when I'd had to write architecture dissertations and stuff, I'd really enjoyed them, and I'd done you know quite well on them. And I always had this kind of thing at the back of my head of like, yeah, I'd love to write more, but I had no idea what I'd write about and was thinking more like, maybe I'll go and do a master's in like architectural theory and write more architecture stuff. And then suddenly this thing happens, this breast cancer diagnosis hits me and I'm like, my God, this is so horrible, but it's really interesting. It's like, it's such a departure from my day-to-day life. You know, I'm suddenly here sitting in a chemo unit with like a needle sticking red fluid into my body and an ice cap on my head to start trying to stop my hair falling out, which it completely failed to do. And, you know, I'm kind of running around with a wig on my head, pretending to people I don't really know that I don't have cancer. And yeah, I've just got a great new haircut, all that stuff. Wow. This is really interesting. So I started to write about it, you know, not knowing what the hell I was doing. I didn't know how to write like anything really apart from a university essay and I think I also thought like I want to something good to come out of this experience so like if I can create something beautiful from it like a piece of writing that means that it doesn't justify having had it but it means at least I've created something kind of beautiful out of something ugly so I started just scribbling and then so lucky a really good friend of mine got invited to join a writer's group because she's a proper journalist she was writing a novel and somehow I think she must have asked if I could join as well so this amazing writer's group like even with tutors on MA courses in writing in London were on it some of them and suddenly I was part of this writing group and it was absolutely terrifying but it was also like the best and loveliest thing in the world so I got to meet that we met every two or three weeks with this incredibly smart group of women and sit around a table and we'd each present our work each time like two or three of us would read and present a chunk of our work and get critiqued on it and it was incredible so I did this for years and over those years this book slowly emerged Mm. Mm. so beautiful how did it feel to because this is a part I haven't hit yet so I'm curious (laughs) how did it feel to put it out there in the world once you have completed it. And then I imagine it's this birthing type of process. Yeah. I mean, I had by then shared my story somewhat publicly, like I'd written a feature for, you know, quite a well-known women's magazine and I'd shared it on Facebook with all my, you know, 700 Facebook friends, most of whom I've never met kind of thing. So I felt like I'd done the kind of major exposing part of my story by the point the book came out. I mean, to be honest, putting the book out there was really hard because unbeknown to me, the coronavirus was about to hit. So I did this in 2020. I planned the whole launch, had it all set up. And then I had to cancel my launch party because of COVID. We had to do it on Zoom instead. 
it was an incredibly hard time to get press and stuff. So it was quite challenging. And, you know, it was also really lovely as well, like feeling like, you know, I completed something as much as a, a book is ever complete. Cause I think, you know, nothing's ever fully complete, but you just go, okay, I'm going to buzz it, put it out in the world and, and let it be there in the world. So it was kind of, it was a mix of emotions, like doing it right hot on the heels of the pandemic was uh, mm-hmm. a little challenging. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. This feels very similar to my journey of sharing this next chapter of my life. I've just shared it in the last month on this podcast for the first time. And now I'm in that process. I as well never set out to write a memoir, but writing became a part of my healing journey. And simultaneously, it was COVID. So I, at the same thing, was in this writing group and I had not written anything since high school. And so to find myself with these writers, and I just kept being like, oh, they're writing books, but I'm just here to write for my healing, my own healing. And sure enough, you do that. You show up every week for two or three years, and you may end up with something at the end of it, which I never intended. So I love that how your story was birthed and your book is incredible and I'll be sharing links in the show notes as well. Thank you. Mm, Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Just a really powerful story of resilience and learning a new way of being, learning how to take care of yourself and just continuing to show up in those ways and not not spiritually bypass, not be bypassing the emotions and the hard parts. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Do you have time for some rapid fire questions? Absolutely. Of course. Okay. <laughs> ah, what is your favorite book? Well, this is really hard because I have read a lot of books, but I decided in the end that I think when times feel challenging, I find poetry really healing. There's something about the crystalline clarity of poetry that almost kind of goes straight in and you can, you know, ingest it as like a little nugget of goodness. You don't need to sit down and read the whole book or look through the whole book again. So there's this beautiful book of poems I have by the Irish poet and priest called John O'Donoghue. Mm-hmm. And it's called To Bless the Space Between Us. And he has all these poems for different occasions. So it's like, there's a poem for the interim time, you know, when you're feeling kind of stuck and lost. I mean, there are lots of them. Mm. It's a poem for grief, for birth, you know, everything. So I think that is just, I'm going to choose it as my favorite book because Mm. it's just something you could pick up anytime and find something in. Mm. I love that book so much and it has a very special place in my heart. And I was going into, I normally don't interrupt rapid fire, but I just have to share this because you and I have had so many overlaps of just different things. And so as I was continuing my IVF journey and I finally made the decision to do a laparoscopic 
surgery looking for endometriosis and previous scar tissue from the previous surgeries I'd had. And it took everything for me to be able to trust a surgeon again after what had happened to me when I was younger. And the day before the surgery, my husband and I were walking down the driveway and he said to me, you know, you don't have to do this. Like, this is all because of the desire of wanting to become a mother and and wanting to carry a child. And and he was like, you don't have to do this. And I just kind of sat with that and didn't answer him because at this point, I'm like, it's happening tomorrow. So, And we walk to the mailbox. And in the mailbox, there's this Amazon package. And I was like, did I order something and I forgot about it? What is this? And so we we carry it back. Our driveway is like a quarter mile dirt road. So, you know, it's like a half a mile by the time you walk it. And so we walk back and I get in the house and I open this package and it's from my writing coach. And it is this book. It is Amazing. this book, but it's even wilder. So I just hold the book up to my heart and he's watching me and he is skeptical of all of these moments that I have. And so when he gets to witness one, I'm like, oh, it's just magic. So I'm holding the book up to my heart and I flip, I just flip open to any page and it was the blessing for a mother to be. And I just started yeah. crying and oh I was God. like, okay, like this is my next step. This is my next step. Wow. So that book wow. just holds such a place in my heart. So thank you mm. for sharing that. Mm. What you. are you currently reading? So I am reading fiction at the moment. And I read a lot of memoir and nonfiction. So when I read fiction, it has to be really good. And this one is really good. It's called Cleopatra and Frankenstein by a lady called Coco Mellows, and it's set in New York. And it's a fabulous story. It's just really well written, but really like engaging, which isn't that easy to come across. Mm. So I highly recommend it. I'm still in the middle of it, but it's, it's fab. Okay, I'll check that out. What is one thing you know for sure? Well, I think as we've touched on in this chat, I think that really... We have to be able to hold both our sorrow and our joy. Like there is this tendency to want to push away all the grief, all the sorrow, all the uncomfortable feelings and just put them somewhere deep inside us or far away and only one, you know, good vibes only, be happy. But I think to live a rich life, you have to be able to hold both. And also that like they're both really two sides of the same coin, the same coin of like love, because, you know, if you love, and I mean, you know, not just other people, but life itself, like that is going to bring you great joy and great sorrow. That's the counter side of it. Mm. Mm. I love that. I love that. And do you have a favorite quote, poem, something you would like to leave us with today? Well, I came back to good old John O'Donoghue and Perfect. it's not from the book I mentioned. It's from, um, another book of his a prose piece called Anantara. And I just love this because it just makes me feel kind of calm and trusting and grounded. So he wrote, your soul knows the geography of your destiny. Your soul alone has the map of your future. 
therefore, you can trust this indirect, oblique side of yourself. If you do, it will take you where you need to go. But more importantly, it will teach you a kindness of rhythm in your journey. Mm, that last line. It will teach you a kindness of rhythm in your journey. I've never heard this before. So beautiful. And I think, like you say, it's that last line. It just makes me soften and go, mm. it's okay. Don't need to rush. I don't need to panic because things aren't happening as quickly as I want them to be. You know, mm. whether it's trying to have a baby, obviously that's in the past, or it's trying to get like more writing commissions. It's okay. Yeah. Oh, oh thank you. So if you want to connect with Annabelle, her website is annabellechown.com and that's C-H-O-W-N and I'll have the links in the show notes. Her Instagram also, Annabelle Chown. And she has a beautiful substack, this Beating Heart substack. I will have a link to that and a link to her book, Hidden Young Single Cancer. So I'll have links to all of that. I highly, highly recommend. And if you love reading memoirs like I do, I you can't say enough. You should read this memoir. So thank you, Annabelle. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure to connect today. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into the episode. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you're ready to dive deeper into your own emotional expedition, I invite you to join me in an intimate eight-week virtual book study of Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. And in case you're not quite ready to join the study, I wanted to share a free offering that I often suggest to people as a little bit of a compass to get them started on their emotional journey, the meditation to alleviate stress. You can find the meditation and the book study linked below. I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you for listening. And if you loved this episode, will you please share it with a friend or two? Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you're sure to never miss a single episode. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.